This audio was recorded at St. Barnabas Bible School in Larnaca, Cyprus. To find more resources or to find out more about St. Barnabas Bible School, visit our website at www.stbarnabasbibleschool.org. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this chance that we have each week to come and study your word, to learn more about you. Lord, we pray that as we learn about you, we would learn of you, that we would be drawn closer to you in, uh, in love and fellowship, that we would uh, be more faithful uh, to you, that we'd uh, walk with you more closely. Bless us this evening, Lord, as we, uh, as we seek to learn your truth. Uh, bless us, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so uh, we've got quite a lot to cover this week. I know we've said that the last two weeks as well. We've somehow managed to get through it. Um, but I, I suspect that we might have to spread some of the content here over two weeks, but we'll see. Depending on how, much, how many questions you have or things you want to discuss more, um, I might be able to rattle through it and get, and get to the end, but we'll see how it goes. All right, just a, a brief recap of last week. Uh, the focus of last week's lesson was really how God relates to us. God relates to us through his covenant, um, his covenant with us. Uh, covenantal relationships are foundational to reality, uh, and this is how God has always related to his people and, and in fact, to his creation. We see that in, in uh, God's covenant with his people through Noah. Uh, creation is included in there as well, um, as well as... as in creation itself. Um, we looked at the main sort of dynamics of a covenant, the parts of a covenant that give it shape. Uh, covenants start with a great kindness from God, which then must be responded to with faith that leads to obedience. Um, within the covenant, there are blessings for faithfulness and obedience and curses or, or disciplines for faithlessness and disobedience. Uh, and, and we saw, I think, in looking at God's covenant, something of what we saw in our first session, that God has made this covenant with his people because what he really wants are a people who reflect his character um, in every part of their lives, in every place that they happen to be. That's what he wants. These covenant dynamics we were looking at, they, they form the framework of our life as Christians. They're the backbones of our Christian life. Everything that we do uh, exists within these sort of pillars that give it shape. Um, we're going to look uh, tonight and onwards, really, throughout the rest of this course, at one, uh, really one of those um, key dynamics, which is that faithful response part. This is a course on Christian ethics. That's the, the bit we're focusing on. What does a faithful response to God look like, to his kindness look like? Before we get to think about that a little bit more, though, uh, I want to pick up a, uh, on something that I mentioned last week, another part of a covenant um, that covenants tend to have covenant documents. They have something written down that, that lays out the terms of the covenant agreement uh, for teaching that generation what that means, but also teaching the next generation and passing it on. But the terms are made clear. The response that's required from the covenant lord is, is there, plain. Uh, it's taught to, the, uh, taught to the, uh, the people in the covenant. And so I want to think a little bit more, before we get on to other things, uh, about the Bible as our covenant document, uh, the covenant document of 
God's covenant with his people. Um, I want to briefly touch on two ways that the Bible is often talked about and how I think thinking of it as a covenant document really blends the best of those two together. So the two ways that I've often heard the Bible being talked about from faithful people is, I've heard the Bible being talked about (laughs) a thousand different ways by unfaithful people, but from those who actually believe in Christ and follow him, I've heard it being talked about as an instruction book or as um, a description of the story of redemption. Those are the two main uh, things. Um, So I've heard the Bible described as an instruction manual, a book of instruction, and that was really the description of of my childhood Sunday school classes. Mm. That's what I was told. Bible is uh, an instruction manual. And that was a a rough, kind of crude way of saying that the Bible is teaching on how to live the good life. Uh, That's what they were trying to get at. I don't know if they were trying to compare God to a car or the Christian life to a car. I hope not. I'm going to choose to be charitable to my Sunday school teachers, knowing them and the rest of their life. That's not what they were saying, but they said an instruction manual. Um, I've also heard a lot of the Bible as a story of redemption. And I think potentially that's a bit of a reaction against the moralism caused sometimes by that first school of thought about what the Bible is. Uh, so to, to, give, to, to riff off that Sunday school thing, um, here's an example from my some training I had to lead Sunday school. So this is you know 20 plus years later um, from those Sunday school days. I was told that we need to focus on the Bible being the story of redemption. We don't, we want no moralism. We teach story of redemption. We don't teach the kids what to do. We just teach them the story. And that was the, the flip of that. So from one to the other. Is the Bible a story of redemption? Well, emphatically it is. Yes, it is the description of God's unfolding plan of salvation to his people. Um, it is filled with indicative truths, things that it tells us we are, things that it tells us have happened, that God has done, that have been done for us, all culminating in Christ and his work on the cross and the resurrection. Um, it is emphatically that. It is the story of redemption. But on the other hand, it is clearly also instruction for living. Um, there are clearly moral teachings in the Bible. Um, the Bible itself tells us that we need to learn how to live. Um, there's, a, there's a popular approach, I think, that goes along with that Bible story of redemption, which is simply meditate on these things, you'll feel grateful, and that will lead you to do the right thing. But the Bible itself uh, says, no, you need to learn righteousness. You know, just open the book of Proverbs. First few chapters are get wisdom, get wisdom, pursue it, find it, learn it, uh, listen to your parents to get it. Uh, Or read through Deuteronomy. One of the charges given to the people of God is to teach their children all that God has has spoken to them. So it's clear um, that we need to learn and teach righteousness and to do so from the Bible. So it is obviously got aspects of that instruction manual approach as well. I think this tension, because there is a bit of tension there, is resolved best when we see the Bible as a covenant document. Um, I think we give the Bible, the whole Bible, its proper due if we see it in that way, which is what God has intended it to be. So within a covenant document, you get reminders of covenant history. The whole purpose of a covenant, one of the purposes of the covenant is to create a shared history of faithfulness between two parties. So reminders of, of, of shared history are crucial to a covenant document. Uh, And I think that gets to the best of that redemptive history part of the above. Uh, We have 
all of God's saving plan laid out for us, uh, the reminder, the constant reminder of God's faithfulness to his people, how he saved them time and time and time again, leading up to the great salvation from the great enemies of sin, uh, death and the devil. Uh, that is there. Uh, and, and, and we see that that great kindness is to spur faith. Um, and the successive faithfulness of God feeds faith. And the memorial of these things is passed on generation to generation. So the reminder of a covenant history is a crucial part of a covenant document, and we have that in the Bible. We also have in the Bible the revelation of the covenant Lord. I'm using the word covenant a lot, but it's sort of we have to hear this. Um, uh, the revelation of the covenant Lord and of his creation. So a covenant document always declares who it is that we now serve. And that's abundant in the Bible. It shows what God is like. It shows us what his creation is like. And all of those things are, are, are key to know if we're living in, in covenant. If, we're living in, if we want our life as the people of God to flourish, we need to know who it is we now serve. And that's revealed to us in abundance in the Bible. It's a crucial part of covenant document. But it is also the revelation of divine standard, of the divine standard and of wisdom. Um, and that is not a separate part of the Bible. All of the Bible is meant for instruction in standards, instruction in the purpose of creation, uh, instruction in why God has created the covenant in the first place. Um, all of it is there for God to have people who know his ways uh, and to rule in the world on his behalf after his own heart and reflect his character and his standards. Um, there's, there's no neat division between these three factors of, of narrative, instruction, revelation of character uh, of God. Um, the narrative instructs us, it's, it, it instructs us, it shows us lived examples of what God loves and what he hates, how people with faith have lived up to God's standards or, or have not lived up to God's standards and what they must do then, either faithfully or faithlessly. Um, the narrative shows us how faith reacts in different scenarios um, that have various similarities to our own. There is much to imitate in the stories of God uh, and his people. The instruction, though, also narrates. The instruction in the Bible says, this is the God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Uh, or there was a time when a man was gathering wood on the Sabbath, and this is what happened to him. So the narration and the instruction go together as well. Mm -hmm. um, and the revelation of the character of God and the character of the world instructs as well. Um, be holy as I am holy, as God says. Uh, or therefore a man shall leave his mother and father and be bound to his wife and they shall become one flesh. As, a, as an immediate follow-on from this is the nature of the creation that God has made. Mm -hmm. So, if we view the, view the Bible as a covenant document, as the revelation of redemptive history, which instructs explicitly and implicitly in every part, uh, as well as revealing to us the character of, of God, uh, our Lord, and the world he's made. So, uh, this is 1 Timothy 3, 15-16, very, very familiar, um, but I think instructive in stopping us from splitting the Bible up into parts that instruct or just tell a story or putting one over the other. Um, from childhood, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training 
in righteousness. And I think that captures quite nicely, really, the idea of the Bible as the covenant document for God's covenant people. All right, any questions at this point? Anything you want to pick up, discuss a bit further? Clear enough? Very clear. Great. Well, then, let's, uh, let's take a look at, let's turn our eyes and take a look at the contents of this covenant document then a little bit more, which instructs us and trains us for righteousness. And we're going to start at the highest level today of God's commands for us. The greatest commandments. Yes, so this is Mark 12, 30 to 31, and there's obviously a couple of versions of this uh, same passage, but uh, this is the one from Mark. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Yes, that's the first, greatest, first commandment. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbours, neighbour as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, these are very familiar passages to us. Uh, just a quick comment on greatest there. I don't think this is greatest in terms of better or more righteous. Paul, for example, is very clear that the whole law is righteous. Is the law sin? No, not at all. So it's not terms, in terms of greater in righteousness. Greater, I think, in terms of order of magnitude, of ground they cover, of scope of area of life. Uh, so this is a sort of bigger umbrella. So not set against the rest of the, the commandments, uh, not even set over the rest necessarily, but all the rest gathered together into these two. Um, commands that, if, if you want to, to speak the commands that cover the biggest area of ground in one fell swoop, you go to these ones. If you want to sum up what God, what God requires of his people, Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbour as yourself. That's the quick summary. And um, it seems that there was uh, discussion in the Jewish world at the time basically doing this. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and Jesus seems to be, I, mean, I hesitate to say coming down on the side of some teachers because you know, his is the first out of those. And they're, either, they're coming down on his side, really, in order of, uh, in order of authority. Um, but he seems to be agreeing with that school of thought, which is that, that these two commandments sum up the, the law rather than um, that they're more righteous or, or something like that. So let's look at these a little bit more. Um, first, love God. This is a... Uh, I often think of this as the vertical aspect of things, our duty towards God. And the command is to love God with all your heart. What is the heart? I think we're a little confused about this. People often think of heart as emotions. Yeah, heart is not emotions in the Bible, it's being. The heart is the centre of your being. It's where everything else flows from. Um, it's... It's, I think that, I think, certainly in the Hebrew, it's, it's liver, really. It's not the, you know, it's deep down in your being. It's right in there. It's, it's right in the center. That which makes you, you. You love God with that. And it's the center from which all other faculties that you have come. It's out of the heart flows emotions and thought and action. And we see that in reverse, don't we, with what Jesus said. For out of the heart comes um, every evil thing. So the heart is the centre of the being from which everything else flows. And we're also to love God with all of our soul and mind and strength. But the point here is this is the totality of who we are. 
in every part from the center out. So that includes things like our affections. God's affections should be our affections. Uh, if God loves something, we ought to love it. Mm. Uh, and, and this is missed out a lot these days, if God hates something, we ought to hate it as well. And the Bible has plenty of things that God hates. Uh, so our affections ought to be God's affections if we're to love him with all of our soul, mind, strength and from the heart. Uh, God's loves and joys ought to be our loves and joys. What delights him ought to delight us. The good news is there's lots of things that delight the Lord. He made a creation full of them. Um, God's loyalties shape our loyalties. God is loyal to his people and we ought to, uh, to match those, those loyalties. Um, and God's ways ought to be reflected in our ways as well. Uh, we love God with all of our heart, our whole being. Um, and I think all of that goes back to the, the first lecture, what we were created for, what we've been recreated into. We were created to be God's image, to bring his glory, to rule on his behalf throughout the cosmos, really. Uh, and that starts with loving God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Um, something I want to note here, and we'll pick this up again later, um, but, but loving God is something defined objectively. So we can't say that we are successfully loving God because simply we feel close to him. Mm. Or uh, we're not necessarily loving God because we today feel zealous for him. Um, this is something that's... Our success or failure at loving God is not defined subjectively, but objectively. God gets to decide it, basically, not us. Uh, and we'll come back to this later. But Jesus, remember, says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. There's an objective standard that shows us what loving God looks like. Um, so that's loving God. Anything you want to pick up there or discuss further? All right, so loving neighbor. Um, this is the horizontal aspect, often called. Love your neighbor as yourself. And uh, as a little side note here, this is a common feature of some of these ancient Middle Eastern covenant-type treaties. First, love the king, then love the rest of the citizens in the kingdom. Now, obviously, they are aping God, not the other way around. God is not setting his covenant documents after the pattern of them. They know that this is the way the universe works and so pretend to be God in their covenant relationships. So love the king and love the kingdom is a, is a common pairing. And what we see in the Bible and what Jesus gives us is the true version of that. Um, truly loving God, truly loving the true king and truly loving the, the, your neighbour. Um, I want to give a, a, just a little bit of a, an extended aside here, an excursus. We often, these days, redefine the word love to sort of mean niceness. So we see love your neighbour as be nice to your neighbour. Um, don't hurt their feelings. Love is not the same as niceness. Um, niceness, I think, is an attempt to get at something real. And we'll get to what that is in a moment. Um, but actually, it is an imposter for real virtue and for real righteousness. Niceness is focused on making other, others feel comfortable, not hurting their feelings, uh, being agreeable to them. Uh, it's 
It's a comfortable kind of facade of virtue that often, I think, leads to cowardice, fear of man instead of fear, uh, fear of God, and a desire for a temporary respectability above all, which are not righteousness in God's eyes. Um, also an observation, this is just one of my observations, so take it or leave it. Um, I think that this redefinition of love into niceness takes a lot of our talk about being loving into the realm of mere speech. Um, someone who has words, uh, someone who speaks bluntly and therefore upsets people, is by definition not loving if we are changing love to mean niceness. So we would say they're not loving because they're speaking bluntly, even if they've just spent thousands of euros that they just sort of didn't quite have but managed to scrape together uh, to get the fatherless child in their church a proper education. But because they spoke bluntly, we say they're not being loving because they're not being nice. They're not, uh, they're not, their love is not just concerned with making other people around them feel comfortable with their words. Now, it's getting, there's something in that niceness that we, that is real, that we need to, we'll get to in a minute. Um, but an observation that I've, I've seen is that this redefinition of love into niceness has led to mainly policing speech as Christians, uh, to talk lovingly and forgetting the rest of everything else. It's just an observation I've seen. I don't know if you've seen that as well. Um, when you see talk of being loving, it is generally, generally how you're speaking to someone, not doing other things. I think that comes down to this redefinition, a little bit of love to niceness. Um, now, niceness that is all about making people feel comfortable, we know really that that can't be what love is because we all know sometimes that we have to upset feelings to, to love. It has to happen sometimes. Um, what I think that niceness is trying to get at is much better got at really with biblical words like courtesy and kindness. Um, courtesy and kindness. So we see kindness as a, one of the fruits of the Spirit uh, in Galatians 5, 22, 23. We see courtesy in Titus 3, 2, uh, show perfect courtesy to all. Now the key distinction in my mind and the way I'm, I'm laying things out is that both courtesy and kindness again are defined objectively. They're defined independent of the recipient's sort of subjective experience. Um, kindness is traditionally speaking, traditionally defined, doing good to others. Now notice that that is defined outside of the experience of the person receiving the love. Um, something is for someone's good or not, independent of whether they notice it or feel it that way. Um, and similarly, courtesy, sort of traditionally understood, is extending a measure of respect towards someone, of politeness towards someone, de dealing with them with dignity. Um, the rules of which, and, and usually there's a fairly complex set of rules around what courtesy looks like in any given society, uh, but those societal rules are often expressions of creational fundamentals. Um, so, courtesy, politeness, are, uh, tr have traditionally been seen as love in the small details. But again, it's not defined by the experience of the recipient. Um, 
you can see whether it's happened by evaluating it from outside from an outside perspective so in both of these cases you could rightly defend yourself when accused if someone said you're not being uh, kind you could say well no i was kind look here are the standards of kindness i did this for their good there you know it's not defined by whether they felt you were being kind to them you were being kind or not you were aiming for their good or not or, or, or acting for their good or not uh, and that's defined objectively uh, and courtesy the same um, you know you've heard people say but I, I was perfectly courteous you know that's an appeal to an objective standard outside of the, the feelings of the person you've been dealing with they might say oh, I didn't feel like you were being very polite but you could say I was being courteous um, so these these things are objectively defined they're not defined by the feelings of the person that you're dealing with and so love kindness and courtesy go together but they're they're a concrete objectively defined acts for the good or the honor of others um, these things are commanded niceness that is solely concerned with making the person feel comfortable uh well, we know that that can be an unkindness. Um, mm-hmm. Or a kindness. I mean, yes. Yes. it can be either of those. Yes. But whether it is or not... Yeah, so certainly goodness, again, is a, it's an externally, objectively defined thing. Um, it's, is nice a modern word? It's a very old word that's changed definition hundreds of times. I wouldn't allow any of my students to use it. Yeah. Right. Because it is too ambivalent. Right, right. And the motive behind it, this is the big thing that I, I think it's all about why. Mm-hmm. It's the most important letter in the, in the alphabet. Why? Why did you say that? Uh-huh. And that's why it, nice can be nice or nasty. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's the purpose behind motivation. Certainly, motivation plays into it, certainly. Um, Though I wouldn't say it was the whole factor of it, but but certainly motivation is in there. Certainly, right. So the way we're using it now, this is the modern yes niceness. Niceness has been used to mean things like stupid in the past. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's changed its meaning. It's changed its meaning many times throughout the history of the use. But now we tend to use niceness as a cup of tea. Comforting. (laughs) It's a it's a maintaining the comfort of the people around you. Uh, now, I don't know if any... I've not done a survey of all the dictionaries and what their precise yeah. definition is, but that is the concept of niceness at work, mm-hmm. is making people feel comfortable, not hurting their feelings. Um, that is not the same as biblical love or the same as biblical kindness or even courtesy. Um, and it's possible, I would say, to be very, very nice and yet actually to be hating the person they're being nice to and we see that throughout the bible when you know you've got kind words that are the words of a flatterer are actually you know um oh, yeah. a nice. flatterer is very very nice yeah but yeah. A, a flatterer hates the person they're talking to whereas the wounds of a friend well the wounds of the friend in proverbs can be a wonderful thing when your friend says that's terrible you shouldn't have done that um we're told that that is an example of great love so niceness is not the uh, not the defining feature of whether something is loving or not. Not the same thing. Um, also, just a note on friendship: loving someone is not the same as being friends with them. Consistently throughout the Bible, we are told to love widely, but to choose friends narrowly. 
So the Bible's view of friendship is close companion that has that has the uh, <coughs> has the privilege of giving you close counsel. Um, friendship and love are not the same thing in the Bible. Um, do I love this person? Am I friends with this person? They're not the same question. They can have different answers. Uh, it, so to sum all of this up, not here is... Not all those. What do you mean? You can have friendship and love for the same person. Absolutely you can. Yes, yes so certainly. So not always are they they're, mutually exclusive. No, they're definitely not mutually exclusive. Certainly not. You should deeply love your friends. Yes. However... You can, you can really love a, who's someone who's not your friend and someone who shouldn't be your friend according to the Bible standards. Mm. Yeah. Um, so just to point out that they're different categories. We tend to fuse all of these categories together when really so much of understanding the Bible's ethics is making good distinctions between different categories of things. And so we're just doing a little bit of an exercise in that. Yeah. Here is what I think a good definition of loving your neighbour is. Acting rightly towards your neighbour from your heart. Um, acting rightly towards your neighbour from the heart. So not, uh, you know, actually wanting to do it for their good. Wanting their good. Um, but still, acting rightly, there's an objective standard there. Um, sincerely wanting their good but pursuing that rightly and that leads us on then to the big question who gets to define what acting rightly is there's lots of yeah who gets to define what acting rightly is now the answer is very easy God gets to decide what right, uh, right and wrong is but there are lots of answers to that question out there that will come up against now most commonly it's just it's up to me or some would say it's culturally defined, what's right in one place is wrong in another place and vice versa. Some would say there's no such thing as right and wrong. Um, as we've talked about, some would say that what's nice is right, so what doesn't hurt other people is what is right. Uh, and there are some complicated answers there with people who see some of the, the failings of these but go really sophisticated but just as simply wrong. Um, because when it comes down to it, all of them are, are an attempt to some extent to, to listen to the devil's lie from the start, to eat the fruit and to find for yourself what is right and wrong. Mm. Um, the short answer really is the truest answer. God decides what's right and wrong. And he's revealed it to us. He's revealed it to us in his word and in his world. Um, in his world, with his word being the interpretive map to understand what is revealed in his world. So then, we've been talking uh, about these two great commandments. Love God and love neighbour. Uh, which means um, to... So loving neighbour defined as uh, sincerely wanting the best for your neighbour. Uh, but doing so rightly. Acting rightly towards your neighbour from the heart. But what does that look like? Because these are still very, very general commands, aren't they? Love God, love neighbour. Act rightly towards your neighbour from the heart. This, that is a good general statement, a good general summary, but the, the reality is we come across all sorts of situations that we need to know how to do that in and what that looks like. And we could go about trying to make it up for ourselves, but that ends us 
in what we've just spoken about. You know, um, we're not the ones who get to define what acting rightly is. That's the Lord who does. So then, we need to turn now to the tricky topic of the law of God. The law of God, which I'm uh, going to describe as the character of God exposited, explained, and then applied, um, or linked to that anyway. So we can talk about the law of God in several different ways, and we're going to sort of work from the most general down through to some more specific things here. The law of God most generally is, is all that he commands, everything that he'd have us do and everything he would have us not do um, in accordance with his character that never changes. We could talk about the law of God like this. We could say that there is a fundamental moral law to the universe of what is right and wrong. There's a fun, fundamental uh, idea of goodness that runs through all time and space because it's rooted in the character of the God who created it. Um, there from the beginning, because really it's just God's character and what he loves and what he hates. And he's written that into his creation. Um, and, and that brings us on to the, to the, the law of God and the creation order. Um, we can talk about the law of God like this, that the original creation order reflects God's character. Um, that, that when God created, he, he set up creation in accordance with the law of God to reflect his character. Um, in some senses, the, things, the way that things were made reflect the way that they should be. God has a character and therefore has things he loves and therefore things he hates. And those things do not change because he is God and he cannot change. And when he created, he created, and those things inherently are written into creation. Because creation reflects his character mm-hmm. in every part. It, intended to be. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, the, that's the, the start. Um, so we can read Proverbs, Proverbs 8. We see God's wisdom with him in creation. By wisdom, God created all things. Um, wisdom being an ethical thing. It's not just a pragmatic thing. It's not just God had skill. Um, essentially, the point here is that creation has been formed and filled in accordance with God's character. Um, and uh, in accordance of, of his own knowledge of what he's like. And therefore, what is good. Um, so there's, there's God's character, which leads to the fundamental reality of the things that he loves and the things that he hates, the things he would have uh, happen and the things he would not have happen. Now, we can see that revealed somewhat in the way that he's created the world, because he's created the world after his own character, in accordance to, with, with the pattern um, that comes from him and his character to reflect that. Um, and we can, we can, to some extent, see that and what that is as we look around creation you know so we have Romans 1 it's possible to look at creation and see that God is powerful God is uh, you know just Um, we see his power by looking at creation because his character is written into it 
and his, his law is there. It's often called something like natural law, um, that there are things revealed about God and what he would have us do and what he would have, not, have us not do written into and revealed in creation. Um, does that make sense? Yes. However, we also need to remember what else is in Romans 1, that sin has blinded our eyes to that and we can't see it very well and would often twist that uh, for our own designs. Okay, so we've got the character of God and then the law of God, the great moral law of the universe, what is good and what is not good, that never changes. And then we've already seen that that law of God is sort of published, is written down for God's people, um, most generally in those two greatest commandments, where God reveals uh, most generally um, what his law is. Uh, what his demands for righteousness in his image bearers are in accordance with his character. Um, so God's law, what he loves, what he hates, what he would have us do, what he would not have us do, they exist before anything is written down, before any command is written down for us to know. But God in his grace has written down and given us his commands so that we know what they are. What I'm, what I'm trying to get at here is that before we when, we, when we say the law of God, we often think of the law of God as written down in the Old Testament, the law of Moses. Now, some people would say that that's the first time that God's laws and commands and, and, and standards have been made known. But what I want us to see is that actually the law of God, what God would have us do, what God thinks is right and wrong, has been there from the beginning. They're rooted in God. They're rooted in his character. They're set by him into his creation order. They're made known generally, and then they're made known more specifically in the law of Moses. I'm just thinking, though, before the fall, when God told Adam and Eve what tree or they could eat of all the trees except one they were not sinful but natural revelation or natural law wasn't sufficient for them to certainly make not distinction. no no right no it's never been so, it's never been sufficient right so it, it always needs to be supplemented but after the fall even more so even more so because of our perverse reasoning yeah. and yeah, yeah. Uh, but what I'm uh, the book of Genesis written down is part of our covenant document written down a long time yes, yeah. after so yes. for, for um, the, the main point I'm trying to make is just that God's standards have been ha uh, precede our covenant document well, you can't, oh, yes. you can't yes. write anything until you've thought it so you, you could, nothing could be published if it were not there to publish. So the thought and the ideas have to come before you can write them. Without the words, you can't. Without the thoughts, you can't write a document. Certainly. Yes. Um, um, the, but what I'm trying to say is that um, some people view this as before Moses and the Torah, the, mm -hmm. the first five books of the Bible, it was basically moral, moral anarchy and God didn't have any standards and they weren't known. And really what happened when, when uh, God called Moses and gave 
the instruction of the Torah told, told him to write it down, that that's the beginning, really, of God's ethical standards. But what I'm trying to say is that those things have been there from the beginning. Um, that there is a sense in which they've been written into creation because all of creation reflects the character of God. As in the beginning, it did, and Some could be seen clearly. special revelation, even pre-fall, so supplement yes su- always so, always yeah. supplemented so by those, a special revelation yeah, sorry I'm, yeah. not, I'm not what turns out I'm just saying I'm just saying I'm getting your point I think that God's law has existed from the very beginning even pre-fall yes certainly pre-Moses yes. and certainly pre-pre-pre-whatever Genesis got written down Yes, in the exactly. Form right exactly. Now. Yes, yes. Yeah. Because his standards are based in his character. Yes. Which has always been. Yeah. Um, now, the specific laws, we'll get to in a minute, often, obviously, they're dealing with situations that haven't happened yet. But in terms of the fundamental principles that stand behind God's written law, so his more generally speaking law, the principles, the standards that he's had, they've existed from the beginning. What he loves and what he hates, because they come from his character. And so that general law of God, that general uh, standard of God, has been published to us in various levels according to the specificity that we need to deal with our situations mm-hmm. in front of us. So uh, we have those greatest commandments, very general, very broad. Um, they sum it up but they don't get down into the nitty-gritty. And then we have things like the law of Moses, which is given to publish that, um, that great standard of God into a specific situation, the covenant people of God, and now how they have to live in the world with the situations they're facing. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's what we're going to... Turn now to the law of Moses, uh, what we often call the law in shorthand, which perhaps has caused a little bit of a confusion here, this word law that we use in different ways. Um, But we often use the word, the law in the Bible is shorthand for the law of Moses. Um, So the law of Moses is a publication and an application of the principles, the standards of God's righteousness to a, at, at a certain time. Um, and so from the general love God and love neighbour command, we move down to the less general, but there's still very general commandments mm. of the Ten Commandments. So we're moving down from general to less general, Ten Commandments, um, which I think have, uh, clearly have a, very, a particularly special place in the law of Moses. They're written themselves by the hand of God on stone tablets and placed in the Ark of the Covenant. Um, these things are central to God's covenant with his people. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the Ark of the Covenant is in the center of the temple. It's a very central space in covenant, uh, the covenant of grace, which we're still in, by the way. So, um, so if we want to know what love God and love neighbor looks like more concretely, then we can read Exodus 21 to 17, which we'll do. Bible. 
So Exodus 21 to 17. If you want to know how to love more concretely, then this is what God said. And God spoke all these words, saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honour your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbour's house. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbour's. Okay. If you want to know how to love God and how to love your neighbour then you cannot ignore the Ten Commandments as an exposition and an application of those two great principles. Um, in fact, that is, so in Matthew's version of the, what are the greatest commandments, the end of Jesus' quote there is, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Um, there is a close relationship between those two great commandments and the rest of the law and the prophets within which the Ten Commandments have central place. Um, and again, this is Romans 13, 9. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. The link is made pretty plain to us in Scripture, that love your neighbour as yourself and love God is a summary of what we have here and vice versa. If you want the fuller exposition of love God and love neighbour, you start here the Ten Commandments. But then, the Ten Commandments are also still pretty general. And so then we have the rest of the law and the prophets. The whole Old Testament. As well as all the commands and instructions of the New Testament as well. Um, remember what we were talking about last week. All one covenant document for us. Even though we're in this administration of the covenant of grace. All one covenant document. So, I mean, we can see, we can see that, um, that the rest of the law is an exposition of the Ten Commandments. For example, in Deuteronomy, fairly clearly, clearly the large chunk of the book following the Ten Commandments seems to follow through these, uh, these commandments and to give us um, applications of each command to various situations. Um, what does and doesn't express the principle laid out in the Ten Commandments uh, how those principles that are laid down there would work on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, I think to understand this properly, we need to understand how, uh, how biblical law works. Um, biblical law is something called case law. 
I don't know if you've heard of case law. I'm not a legal expert, so I can't go into loads of details, but thankfully we don't need excessive detail to know, uh, know enough. Um, the law in the Old Testament, Israel, worked on a case law system, and that, this, this is how that works. The command is given in its basic form. Then some sort of dispute or potential break of that command happens. Then that situation that's caused the dispute is brought before the judges, and they work out whether it really does break the law in question or what other laws it might break, if it does at all. And then how that case was worked out and the verdict becomes part, a key part of the guidance for future situations. Um, so what you have is you have a general command given and then you have lots of, lots of worked out case studies of that principle being applied to different situations. And what does that look like when it's this person and this person? Uh, or what about if that person was actually, you know, 10 foot taller? Uh, how, how would that change things? Or what if the ox, uh, they knew that it was goring people um, beforehand? How would that affect the, uh, the judgment in a situation? Um, they're all trying to apply the same principle, but in variety of situations. Um, and what we have really is a body of that case study, case law um, in, in, in the Bible. Um, so it, in, in God's covenant document, we have divinely inspired case law, really, authoritatively worked out case law. Um, you have the big law, then loads of cases that have been weighed, and we're told if that was or was not against the principle of the law. Um, so we should not expect the Bible to give us commands about every single little in instance, but we have been given enough to work out how these apply in many ways. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that I'm soon. Looking, I'm looking New Testament case law. Case law as well. Especially in the epistles. Yep. Yes, yeah. Yep. yeah. What it looks like. What it looks like in this situation. Yeah. Now, in the Greek uh, or Roman world. Exactly. Well. Yeah. 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 Um, that's added onto the body. Yes. Not replacing the yes. body. Yes. Yeah. Just as, a, as an interesting side note, uh, th this is the way the English law has currently worked, as historically worked, yes. case law, um, as well as most of American law, except interestingly in Louisiana. <laughs> um, because, yeah, American law was an attempt to regain some of the principles of English law, mm -hmm. which had been built on common law, which, simplifying greatly, the Anglo-Saxon King Alfred built based on Deuteronomy yes. and the canon law. So English law draws its pattern from Deuteronomy and the Bible in its case law system. American law does the same, except for in Louisiana because it was French. So just an interesting little, uh, little bit there. Um, well, I know Cyprus doesn't have this case law precedence, so yes. judges... Judges' decisions don't firm up. Ambiguous laws just remain ambiguous and loopholes until Parliament doesn't, you know, makes, makes better laws or worse <laughs> laws. <laughs> well, what you, what you find in a case law system is that the actual statute books tend to stay fairly limited because you're dealing with exceptions as they come up. The assumption is everyone is free to do within the bounds of the laws and let you know, the, the yes. edges get worked out as cases come up, whereas the alternative in Roman law is generally that you try and lay out every single possible exception that you can and you ban it. Um, so that, there's, there's a, that's just a historical interesting difference between the legal systems of uh, the English-speaking world and, and other parts of the world. Um, <laughs> and everyone else. <laughs> everyone else except for 
Israel and the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> much of this covenant document is case law. And in fact, even the narratives are sort of an unofficial case law as well. Mm-hmm. So you have, in this situation, King David do- does this, and God does approves, either implicitly or explicitly. Um, he, so now we know what is a godly response and what doesn't break some of the commands. Um, we have another case to add to our understanding of what it means to live out love. And that's obviously modified by who that character is in relation to the story. But um, though the, that body of narrative also adds up to give us case laws. Things to imitate, not imitate. Uh, adjusted based on situation. Um, and we have negative examples as well. as positive examples. Yeah. Okay, uh, since we're talking about the law of Moses, uh, we should talk about something that's traditionally called the threefold division of the law of Moses, or some variation of that term. Uh, this is the idea that within the law of Moses, there are sort of three types of law. There is moral law, ceremonial law, and judicial or civil law. So the moral law would be those laws that reflect universal moral standards. They're sort of abstract principle, as abstract as you can make it when you're writing a historical covenant document. Ceremonial laws would be the laws that reflect ceremonial matters, so usually to do with temple worship or ceremonial uncleanness. And then judicial or civil laws are those laws which reflect the crime, crime system of Israel. Um, what, what punishment there is for adulterers, for example, or what punishment for murderers, that kind of thing. So that would be the, uh, the judicial uh, laws. So historically, this threefold distinction has been used to discuss which commands from the Old Testament still apply today or not, um, or, or how various commands apply today or not. So the threefold distinction would be used for that. This is a, it's a somewhat controversial division mm. these days. Um, the question is, does this tradition really, traditional division really exist um, in the text? So some things for it, I'm going to do some things for it. It's been practically useful in passing out various applications of Old Testament law to Christian life and society. Practically it has been useful. Um, It's been around for a long time and we've got to assume that our fathers in the faith are not complete idiots who didn't read their Bibles. You don't use this tradition around for a long time. Is it pre-Reformation? Yeah, it is pre-Reformation. Yeah. Oh, so I think it has it some... It has some... some precedent, precedent yeah, yeah. Um, The Catholic Church, we'll uh, see, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, they read their Bibles and they had good reasons for it. All right, so we've got to be charitable. Now, obviously, the against is this is nowhere explicitly laid out in the Bible. Um, and when you look at individual laws, they're often mixed. You have ceremonial laws reflecting some moral truth, which is then punishable by judicial sanctions. So they're all together in, in one law. Um, so this is my, I'm just going to lay out my position. Um, it's, people go back and forth on these things, and a lot of ink has been spilt on it. So my position is that there is a distinction there. There are different aspects of life that I think are reflected in uh, these distinctions reasonably well. And in Old Testament Israel, there are different offices involved in overseeing different parts of life. So if you look at the political life of 
Israel. Um, we often assume it would be what we call an ecclesiocracy, that it was just sort of the religious leaders that led everything, but that just wasn't the case. Um, so there are different offices within Israel. There's judicial offices, judges, elders, kings. There are ceremonial offices, the priest, uh, moral throughout all, all of that, um, but sort of applicable even when there isn't a, a presiding officer, as it were. Um, now, I think, that, I think that this traditional distinction does get at some of those distinction in offices. The whole law is not just lumped under, under one person to fulfill, um, to, to, to be in authority over uh, in the life of the Old Testament Israel. So I think there is some distinction here. But it's not three different distinct bodies of law. No. Um, mm. They're all taking a part of one law that they are responsible for. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's, it's one united covenant law, but with different offices responsible for different parts of it. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of different voices in the choir or different parts on the same mountain. Um, so I would tend to say that there is no essential distinction between these different types of law, but there is a, a practical, uh, you know, that, 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 uh, that there is a... That the distinction is getting at some aspect of, of variation between focus in different parts of the law as displayed in different offices within Israel taking on different parts of enforcing it. Yes, so you, I like what you're saying because then you, I assume you don't then, dis, you don't categorise everything and then say, oh, that's just ceremonial. Yeah, you don't do that. Like, what's the point of reading through Leviticus? You know, it's ceremonial. It's it, all it doesn't apply, you know, yeah. so yeah. why am I... Absolutely yeah, not get that. It, I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 that's good. Um, working out what the moral or civil or ceremonial aspects of any given command requires proper exegetical study on it. And... Uh, and um, it, even when you've worked out what it is, you don't cast away bits just because they fall under one of your little categories. Um, yeah. Having said that, I think it's still a useful distinction in working out how some things apply. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, now we need to talk a little bit about that question. How does the Mosaic law apply to Christians living now, post-Jesus. We'll discuss that a little, if you can discuss that a little bit. I think I don't think it's possible to have a little discussion. I think it generally tends to go into a a huge discussion. Here are the main positions on that. So if we're asking the question, how does the Mosaic law apply to the Christian believer today? Here are the main positions that I see. Firstly, none of it's applicable because it's all different now with Christ. Um, so I think what we are talking about last week with the fundamental unity between covenants completely disqualifies that one. Um, in my mind, it does. Uh, so in that, what you end up with, no attempt to apply Old Testament law or command to anything. It's just irrelevant to the discussion because it's gone. So that's one position that some people have. Oh, right. Yeah, it's not my position. Um, <laughs> a little bit confused. Yeah. A bit confused. Yeah, yeah. No, don't worry, he's, he's pretty You'll good at this guy. The second position is some of it is applicable, which is what we've just been talking about. So usually the moral parts are applicable. Um, 
This is what we get when we separate strictly between moral, civil, and ceremonial law. You end up saying, well, some bits of it are applicable now. The moral, um, historically, Christians have also said that the moral bits behind the civil parts are also applicable. Um, and that the details of the ceremonial parts are just done away with. Um, so what you have there is you get a lot of hard work to apply some parts to some people and then completely ignore the application of other parts to the Christian life. So that's what that's the, the next position that people have. Some of it is applicable. Um, and the result is hard work to apply some bits, completely ignoring the application of other bits. The other um, position is, unsurprisingly, that all of it is applicable. Um, and that the that all of it being one law within our covenant document is applicable to the Christian today. Now, within that camp, there are all sorts of discussions about how much the applications are transformed by various factors. Um, there are disagreements within that, within uh, to what extent various bits apply straight across or um, with consideration of various changing situational things. Um, but the, the long and short of it is that there's a lot of hard work and often a lot of disagreement about how to use the Old Testament law in all, all of it to inform current ethical decisions. Um, those are the three basic positions. None of it's applicable, some of it's applicable, all of it's applicable. And then there are various discussions within those camps. Here's my position again, and obviously, since it's my position, I think it's the right one. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, some people, some people, people don't admit it. People like to say, you know, this is my position, but of course I could be completely wrong. It's, no, I, it's my position. I think I'm right. I mean, I may be wrong, but, you know, um, I, I, I don't think I am, which is why I hold this position. Um, I believe that the, the whole law is totally authoritative. It all forms part of our covenant document and is useful, therefore, for teaching, correcting, reproving, and training in righteousness. And then we have, uh, we have Matthew 5, 17 to 18, the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, much ink has been spilled about one part of that passage, the word fulfilled. What does that mean? Does it mean confirmed? Does it mean um, something close to got rid of in some, some writers? Hmm. But regardless of that debate, I find it really hard to square the next bit, that not an iota, not a dot will pass away from hmm. it, and that whoever relaxes and teaches others to do the same, you know, at least to the kingdom. will be least in the kingdom of heaven. Um, I find that very hard to square with slicing the law up into bits that are authoritative and bits that aren't. I agree. Um, Maybe on the applicable side. It's on the applicable, not on the essential nature. That's what he's saying. Certainly. Um, so, this is what I would say. I would say that all of it is authoritative. Mm. But I would also say that all of it is to be applied to actual situations. Because it's case law. Yeah. Because it's case law. Mm. Um, 
we're given particular cases and how law applied there. We've been given what love God and love neighbor looks like there. And if I was to face exactly the same situation, then great, I have the judicial verdict there. Authoritative, I don't have to do any hard work. That's it, clean cut, done. But I am very unlikely to meet exactly the same situation very often, which means I'm always gonna have to do a little bit of work working out how the, the, the principle applies to the situation at hand. So things that, have, that, that change the situation um, for how I apply the law. Um, so things like the offices that I personally hold or don't hold. So a law might be tell me what to do if I was an elder mm. more clearly than it tells me what to do if I'm, if I'm not. So those things are factors that you need to take into account. Uh, the details of the occasion in front of you, mm -hmm. is what you're facing really exactly the same as that or is it modified slightly by this factor mm -hmm. and that factor? Um, all the details of the occasion. And then there's one major situational change that we need to take account of, and that is the fact that Christ has died, has risen, and has ascended now. Um, it is a situational change that it is the dramatic situational change that changes, uh, changes how the law applies. It does not stop the law applying, any of the law applying, uh, but it, it's a change in what, the, it's a change in the situation that changes what the application looks like in the specifics. Um, and I think it's fair to say, going back to our threefold distinction there, that that, change, that changes the application of some law, bits of law, types of law, more than others. So for example, the change in the ceremonial aspects of the law. Now none of that stops applying. Uh, I think the ceremonial language is applied all throughout the New Testament to yes. Christians. Yes. Uh, we're a living sacrifice, says Paul. Um, I think that there are applications from the ceremonial law and the pattern of it for how the worship service of believers, for example, should be. Uh, those laws haven't gone away, they're not removed, but the application of them looks slightly different in that I'm not going to go and kill a goat. Jesus' death and resurrection has changed things such that the situation is now that I'm the sacrifice, and so I need to go and be prepared for to be an offering to the Lord. Um, so there are some, some aspects of law, which is where I think the distinction is helpful, where, the, where the, uh, the situational transformation looks a little bit bigger than in other aspects of the law. So if we take do not murder, it's pretty straight across. The situation has not changed in, enough for any meaningful difference in what that looks like on the ground. Um, do not murder means the same thing. It looks, sorry, it looks exactly the same now as it did then. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, except I don't think it's, yeah. No, I do agree with you. It's just things like do not murder, I, I think are not clear be, between Christians at least because of, say, war where killing, if it's law, can, can be lawful. But that's not the same, same thing, that's not murder. We'll get into some of this well, discussion when we go through okay, the Ten they, Commandments. No, okay, we'll leave it there. No, if it's not just war, no. then it's murder, in my opinion. If it's so where do you... personal vendetta against one person... Oh, that's the clear cut. Yes. Yes. So, so yes. Uh, I think the definition of murder in Old Testament Israel was, is very similar to what our definition of murder is. No, today. today. Right, which is just the, un, the which personal is personal unlawful. Personal un, so yes, that the, 
not killing, um, yes, a personal, a private person taking on themselves the, uh, the, the right or privilege to kill someone because they, because they want to. The yes. To do because so. they have the power to do so, they want yeah. to out of vendetta or for other reasons. Yeah. Okay. So not including uh, judicial execution, not including just war. Mm. Um, so we'll talk about the details of that yeah, when we get into yeah, into yeah, the, yeah, the, the, the yeah. commandments in, in later sessions. But uh, well, what I'm saying is, in the case of, of of do not murder, the command do not murder, it looks remar- remarkably similar then as it does now, and so it's a pretty straight across. Mm. Um, straight across translation to our current situation. Uh, however, um, with some aspects of the law, like take the goat, do the thing, kill it, that does look remarkably different, though I think all of the law there actually does apply, but just the yes. application yes. looks the different. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yes, but it's, so the application of do not murder is... Basically the same, do not murder. Whereas yeah. the application, say, of Yom Kippur and the two goats and what you did with them, You've got to do a lot more work, basically. Haven't you, you've you got to, to do a lot more exegetical work yes. to get to it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Or to approach it. Yeah, ah. Ah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. But uh, again, we'll talk about a lot of the more specifics um, as we go through the course. Uh, we'll get into it a bit more. I think we've probably got enough time to cover this last little bit. Uh, finally, I want to talk about the three uses of the law. We've got a lot of threes here, three distinctions, three uses. Um, Traditionally, I don't, have you heard of these? Have you heard of the three uses of the law as no. traditionally defined? No, okay. I think these are pretty soundly biblical. Um, but the three uses of the law historically traditionally defined in uh, reformed circles are firstly to lead someone to Christ, to restrain evil, yes. and to teach what is righteous. Yes. So those, those are the three uses of the law. Your third and fourth pages are, are they? No. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. I, I've stapled these. Uh, yeah, no, no, it's fine. With, no, no, no. Okay. It all makes. It all makes. Okay. <laughs> it all makes sense. Now, yes. Okay. Right. <laughs> Lead to Christ, restraint of evil. Lead to Christ, restraint of evil, and uh, teaching yeah. righteousness. Yeah. yeah. So I think the the first of these laws, the first the of these uses. Is the law, sorry. Excuse me. Here. Mm-hmm. Are you saying that even in the Old Testament, the uses were to lead to Christ? Yes. Okay. I, I, I am saying that. Yeah. Um, so, uh, the first use here is perhaps the one that's most familiar to most evangelical Christians today. The use of the law is to show us how holy God is, how far short you fall of his mm-hmm. standards, therefore to say you need to... Repent and that receive mercy. <laughs> well, no, you need to repent and have and receive mercy. There's no other way. Um, so, and this is certainly a use of the law. All of the law in the Old Testament is not just instruction. It is prophetic. As we were saying, the, the redemptive historical is fused with the instructive. Um, it is prophetic through and through, and it points to Christ through and through. So the sacrifices and the laws there point to Christ's sacrifice. The justice points to the judgment of God on sin. The moral point... The moral laws point to the righteousness of Christ, the perfect king. And so in every aspect that we've been talking about, you could possibly think of, it points to Christ. It's prophetic. And all of it shows how we need to come and ask God for mercy as our only hope for salvation. Um, and, I mean, we, we even saw that last week, didn't we, in that um, 
when we said, when I said uh, that, that to fulfill the law properly, you needed to take your sacrifice and ask for forgiveness. You needed to go and, yes. and, and plead for mercy. Um, so even so, in that, even in the instructive and obedience aspects, you know, you're being pointed to Christ all the way, all the time. And so this is perfectly true. This is one of the, the uses of the law. It is prophetic. Um, and I think that use of the law is often the one that we experience first chronologically in the life of the soon-to-be and new believer. Mm-hmm. Um, this is people receive the understanding, the conviction that they are falling far short of the glory of God and then they're led to their knees to Christ. So we're familiar with this, and I think we, we do quite well as a Christian culture these days about talking about this use of the law. Mm-hmm. Where I think we fall down is on the other two uses of the law. Um, so the second use of the law, uh, I think, is the most ignored these days, and that is the use of the law to restrain evil. Um, that is that the law is there to deter and remove wickedness from society. It's sometimes called the political use of the law. Um, it's a secular kind too, yes. So here's an example. It would be on the basis of the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Murder is punished in a society. Mm-hmm. Um, that murderer may not repent. It may not lead them to repentance, i.e. the first use of the law. It may not lead them to learn righteousness. Mm-hmm. But what it does do it is achieve a good in restraining, restraining wickedness in society. Yes. Um, the wicked man was free to murder. He's no longer free to do so. Mm-hmm. Unless murder is around which is an objective good. So that's the second use of the law. Uh, the law. I think we, we, feel a, we modern evangelicals feel a bit uncomfortable with this one generally. Um, we're, we're quite novel in our generation to feel that way, generation, you know, the last but, well, 100 does, years. But says restraint, you may go to the, let's say, extreme example of um, punishing or executing the murderer. But does it... Does it not also extend to, for example, thinking like, because I'm old, when I was younger, growing up in England, there was seemingly more restraint yeah. on things like sexual morality and so on. Certainly, that. all of that. Yeah. yeah, because they were generally considered to be wrong. So I would think fewer people exactly. indulge. Even I, if I don't know. To. Even if they but wanted yes, to, it, it would have held so, some back. Yes. It would have destroyed your career. Exactly. Uh, yes. You would have destroyed your family yeah. life. Your you would be shamed, your yes. reputation, everything. Mm-hmm. So you behave. That, that's the second use of the law. Yes. Um, and it, according to the reformers, and I think they're not the first ones to say this, it's gone well back, that is a legitimate use of the law. Yes. Mm. Um, it's not the whole use of the law, no, but it is a legitimate use of the law to restrain wickedness in society. Um, mm-hmm. And I... I would say that um, our rejection of this use of the law is perhaps why so many so Western, Western societies are falling yeah. apart. Yeah. Um, the third, third use of the law is to teach the righteous life uh, to the believer, to the one who is in God's covenant. Um, at, we've labelled these one, two, and three. Calvin would say this is the principal use, the third one, the one in which the glory of the law shines most fully. In his people. In his people, teaching them how to be righteous. That doesn't sound like modern mm. evangelical, does it? Not at all. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
So this use of the law is to teach the Christian who is saved by grace, redeemed for holy living, recreated to live for Christ in every part, how to actually do that. So Calvin would say that is the principal use of the law. It's, it's the one where it comes into its own. Uh, and yeah, that, that, that is also neglected today. Perhaps not to the extent of the second one. Um, some would say that number one is most important. I'm with Calvin and think that number three is, is probably the principal use of the law. Um, after all, it was published for the covenant people. Um, yeah, but how about um, in Romans chapter two, when even the Gentiles, without really knowing all the law of God, they can, because they have the Holy Spirit, they... Well, those are, yeah, those are Gentile Christians, aren't they? Yeah, Gentile Christians. Yeah. I'm a Gentile Christian. Oh, just, I'm not like saying us. I don't need the Old Testament, I'm just saying, even if you didn't have it, yeah. I think God the Holy Spirit still teaches you. I wonder if there's Christians in the world somewhere, in some remote village somewhere, that don't have, they've got a New Testament for some reason, someone's translated their language, mm-hmm. and yet they still get most things, not everything, but they get most things right, and they've understood most things correctly because the Holy Spirit's teaching them without having all the law of God. My approach to that is praise the Lord that he does miraculous things. Yeah. Yeah. But that's not the kind of thing that we who have the Old Testament should no, no, expect. No, no, no. But it can um, happen. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the, I mean, the, God can do incredible things. Yeah. I mean, all sorts of things can yeah. happen. Yeah, yeah. I, I used to work with Iranians, and I would hear them say that they've come to Christ through a dream. And I believe them, but also it's not what I would expect now that they've come here for them to expect ongoing dreams. And they've it's come to the place where God has given them a better gift. God has given them the scriptures and all its fullness. Um, so... You know, the, the Lord can do many, many wondrous and various things, but his best gift is his covenant revelation given to his people. Um, yes. I agree. Yeah. Yes, I mean, I've, I've analysed some of these stories that I've heard, both in person and uh-huh. sort of second-hand, about dreams and visions and so on. And it seems overwhelmingly that the people come to a real faith in Christ when they encounter the word of God. So they have this amazing experience Mm -hmm. which then drives them to go to a city and find a church or Christians. They get their hands on a Bible and they read it and then they find out who that person in the dream or the vision was. So I think that plays out in the New Testament as well, isn't it? I mean, there were incredible signs and wonders, but they then Uh led people to... A knowledge of Jesus mm-hmm. through the apostolic teaching mm-hmm. and the Hebrew scriptures, yeah? yeah? Yeah, 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 certainly. And and in terms of people in the world who've only got the New Testament, and um, praise the Lord, yeah, that they are of one piece, and so, yeah, you know, things will shine through in the New Testament that they'll yeah, understand yeah. and they'll get. My experience is generally that people who have only the New Testament, though it is a good thing that they have, are impoverished generally. Compared to when they have the full revelation well, of the yeah, early yeah, church, yeah, didn't have the exactly, yeah, yes, exactly. Jesus didn't have these. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And when Paul says that all of Scripture is God breathed, I mean, he's talking about the Old Testament there. Um, yes, yeah, I, I put the question the other way: Do we need the Old Testament? And my question, to be provocative, is: Do we need the New Testament? <laughs> now, my, 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 I, I mean, the answer will be we do, but um, the point is. Early Church, Hebrew Bible, all the scriptures, etc. Yeah, I was once taught by someone who was trying to be provocative. He was really trying to be provocative, and he said, "Oh yeah, the New Testament. Yeah, I read that once. I liked it. It's a nice little epilogue you've got." 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he, he was also a, he was a scholar and had read his New Testament loads. He knew it very, very well. But what he was, the point he was making was yeah, that... It's all based on... The New Testament is the answers. The questions yes. are all there in the Old Testament. Yes. Um, and the New Testament is an application of the Old Testament to a new stage of, of And things. you can't really make head nor tail of the New Testament about the Old. Yeah. So when they translate yeah, the New Testament... No, I'm not, saying, I'm not saying this shouldn't be done, but when Wycliffe, they go for the New Testament first. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that's wrong, but it's very difficult to understand, isn't it, without... If you haven't got Jews or apostles or people around to explain it, the problem with the Old Testament possibly comes in our early experience of it, which seems to be all doom and gloom. (laughs) There's so much negativity in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, you seem to think, "Oh, at last, (laughs) you know, it's all right now." Well, a lot of people get killed in the New Testament, considering yes, it's over such a short period. It, it is true. Struck down but when by child, God you don't see that teachings so on eternal. It's it's such a short period of time because mm-hmm. the awful stuff in the Old Testament is spread out over more true, time. But when you ch- when you're a child and you talk about oh, yeah, the stories, yeah. they're all so nice. Uh, sorry, yes. they're also comforting. <laughs> yes, sorry, but they are. After yes. the Old Testament would seem to be so vicious. Operative word there is probably taught, isn't it? Yes. We're, we're viewing yes. the scriptures yeah. because of the way that they've been filtered through by the people who are They're teaching, teaching them to us. Yeah. 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 Or yeah. not teaching. And, and, or not teaching <laughs> and, and the reality yeah. is that, that modern Christians need to do an awful lot of work doing what we were talking about at the start, which is learning to hate the things that God hates and love the things oh, that love, yeah, God loves. Yeah, yeah. We tend to come at it and say, this thing was awful, this is dreadful, where God says, well done. And we need, to, we need to often examine our own assumptions about these things because they're really coming from a, a, a sort of nice sensibility that's, that's alien to the Bible. Um, so, But we have to be careful. I have a caveat here. Because sometimes the nasty things, the things that people say to us are nasty, not because they want us to be loved or correct or anything, but because it gives them great power. Certainly. People can say nasty things for reasons that are not good. (laughs) Absolutely, they can. They can. Um, That's that's true. but you're not advocating nastiness. I'm not advocating, advocating nastiness. Even truth, truth, indeed. truth, and, and real, real beauty, real goodness. They need to know the truth. They mustn't set themselves up as knowing the truth when it's not really the truth. That's no, where that's I find this distinction. Yes. Yes, Be yes. careful. If you don't know what you're talking about, don't talk. <laughs> that's uh, yeah. That is very wise. Yeah. <laughs> All right. It's half past eight, so we'll Sorry. bring this into a close. Um, So just a a conclusion here. In conclusion, God, our covenant Lord, requires us to love him and to love our neighbour as ourself. And he's he's told us how to do that and what that looks like. And we would be wise to turn there. Um, And whilst there's room for disagreement about how particular commands and examples apply and how they're transformed by various situational things, uh, I want to finish with a, a warning of a characteristic temptation of our day, which is to scrap those commands completely try to make up our own standards of so-called love based on our feelings or modern sensibilities or intuitions. And though, they, though that may be done with a desire to love neighbour, it will 
ultimately re- result in not loving neighbor. Yes. God is the one who gets to decide what love is. And he describes what is good for our neighbor and what is not good for our neighbor and good more broadly as well. Um, we don't want to run away from the Old Testament law and despise it. Instead, we, we want to pray really that the Lord would spare us from that and lead us to embrace the words of, of Psalm 119. Um, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers. For your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules. You have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. So whilst there's disagreement about how things exactly apply, we want to be pursuing this attitude to the law of God, which is to, to love it and to see it as sweet and true. Yeah. All right, we'll leave it there. Well done. Thank you. <laughs>